0: This is Altruistic, where we speak with pioneers in the race to zero and unpack the lessons from their experience for you, our community of impact professionals. I'm your host, Sef Hamid, and in today's episode, we're joined by Sibbe Kroll, head of sustainability at the online flower delivery company Bloom and Wild. Bloom and Wild has used technology to turn the flower industry on its head and become one of the most loved and trusted flower delivery brands in the market. Simba is at the helm of Bloom and Wild's ambitious sustainability agenda, committed to making the right kind of impact with every bouquet sold. To understand how Bloom and Wild is lightening their material footprint whilst meeting growing consumer demand, we'll address the challenges facing the floriculture industry, spotlight the tools to overcome these challenges, and unbox the commercial incentives that enable Bloom and Wild to responsibly flourish on a finite planet. Sippe, thrilled to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Great to be here, Saif. Our pleasure, Sippe. I wonder, just to get us started, what would be super helpful is if you could give a little context on Bloom & Wild and the business, just for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with the brand already.
1: Sure, happy to. Yeah, so Bloom & Wild is an online flower and plant and gifting delivery company. We're actually currently comprised of three different brands. So Bloom and Wild in 2021 also acquired two other brands, Bloomon in the Netherlands and Bergamot in France. And amongst the three of us, we cover eight markets across Europe. So we're in the UK, in Ireland, we're in the Netherlands, Belgium, France, Germany, and in Denmark. And we've pioneered also in the UK specifically the letterbox delivery of flowers. So making it an even easier and more straightforward process to give people flowers and to make the gifting of flowers the joy that it should be and also actually looking at using that method to have as low a footprint as possible for delivery and as low waste as possible by optimizing also smart forecasting and other types of data applications Uh, in that way already using the data and the technology that we have as a platform for sustainable flower delivery as a basic foundation
0: to digging into that a bit more but before we do We were just catching up, you and I, at the start of this podcast or just before we went online, and I loved hearing about your personal story and what brought you into sustainability in the consumer context. One of the things that we found very interesting as we have run these podcasts is how many chief sustainability officers and heads of sustainability have had different roads leading them into this capacity. I'd love to just get the few sentences for our listeners from you on what brought you into this role and why sustainability is important to you personally.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. So I actually have a background in global development. So my first work experience was in, in, in the field of global development. I was uh, based out of Tanzania, uh, mostly in Dar es Salaam and in the Morogoro area, because I was very passionate about looking into development and seeing how I could help make a positive change happen in the world. And I did that for a while. It was a very positive experience, but I also actually found it sometimes really interesting to see how private sector was helping drive a lot of that development in in East Africa. And so then I moved over to a strategy consultancy where I was for a number of years looking at how to gain more experience in how private sector operates and in different types of businesses. And then I used that combination of experiences in my previous role, which was at a, a global NGO a sustainable trade initiative, where I worked on different supply chain initiatives to see how to create as sustainable as possible trade between different countries, especially, of course, the West and developing countries, working on different sectors, where I also came across the, the floriculture sector, specifically in Ethiopia. And um, that actually, yeah sparked my interest to to dive deeper into that sector and then ultimately led me to Bloom & Wild Group, where I now, since uh, March of this year, 2022, have been the head of sustainability.
0: Given the importance of global trade flows to the flower industry globally, I think that's a very important set of context to come in with to Bloom and Wild. Could you tell us a little bit more, Sabir, about what sustainability means at Bloom and Wild, either in terms of targets or milestones or KPIs? What are the most important aspects?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So Actually, one of the first things we did when, when I got started earlier this year was to take another look at the sustainability tra- strategy that we have and to do an uh, an update on it. So we did a materiality assessment, not just ourselves to determine what we thought was important, but also listen to important stakeholders, multi-stakeholder initiatives, NGOs and others to see what are the big topics within the sector and that we really should be aware of and, and what we should focus on. And that for us led us to six specific priority points, three environmental ones and three social ones. So in the environment, we focus on the climate impact of the sector. We focus on biodiversity or life on land as a sustainable development goal target. And we focus on water. And on the social side, we look at good wages, poverty alleviation. We look at gender and inclusion. And we look at decent work, looking at uh, also here, the related sustainable development goals, which are one, five and eight out of the top of my head. And those correspond also very much to the targets that we've set. So more particularly, especially on climate, we've been carbon neutral as a group since uh, 2020. So for a while already, but we also have adopted a net zero pathway, which we see as complementary because we will continue to commit being carbon neutral using offsets to negate the impact that we have but also have adopted a net zero pathway in line with science-based target setting where we want to reduce our footprint by 50% by 2030 and by 90% by 2045. And it also means uh, a 7% year-on-year reduction in our carbon footprint per bouquet. And I think these are the kind of very tangible targets that we, we are now monitoring in all aspects of our business, but most of all, the sourcing of flowers because that's the majority of our footprint. But on a related note, we also have targets related to environmental and social and good agricultural certification of our growers, where we want to have 90% uh, certified products by 2025, uh, which is another important milestone for us that we're working on with our, our teams uh, across the businesses. And Sipit, and you mentioned a 7% year-on-year reduction
0: in the emissions of the bouquet. I'd love to dig into that a little more and understand what sits behind that. How do you get those numbers? What drives the net zero pathway?
1: So we've actually spent quite a bit of time and resources as an organization to build a carbon footprinting method where we actually have a footprint per flower stem. So we actually built a database to understand what is the carbon footprint of a specific flower also depending on which geography it's coming from and that's actually given us a lot of levers to find ways to significantly reduce the footprint of our products and to actually look for the lowest emission opportunity for sourcing a certain bouquet and we're now using that in a host of different ways so we're actually rolling out internally carbon budgets to make sure that our designs are actually reducing the footprint year on year but also with our flower teams we're looking at specifically where we can get the lowest emission types of flowers for a certain type of variety based on the geography or the way of growing and we're also connecting with our suppliers to see what type of developments are happening in the sector or what kind of opportunities there are further lowering the footprint Uh, so there's of course a lot of investment happening in how to make greenhouses more sustainable whether you switch over from natural gas to geothermal energy or whether you switch over from regular Sonté lights to LED lights, which is again a, a 50% reduction in, in electricity consumption typically. Uh, but there's also a lot happening in terms of switching over from air freight to sea freight, which for flowers coming from Kenya could mean a further around 80 to 90% reduction in the footprint uh, overall. So that's uh, those are very significant reductions that we're looking at. Uh, so it starts with building that database and, and the level of understanding to see where does the impact sit and then also seeing what are the levers that we can pull and where we can work together with stakeholders in the sector to further drive down the footprint of our products.
0: Sibbe, this is fascinating, and there are so many aspects of this that I'd love to dive into. Maybe just to start with the database, because that sounds like an incredibly valuable asset that you've built within Bloom & Wild. I imagine that a lot of that data actually needed to be sourced from suppliers, given where where you sit in the value chain. Could you tell us a little bit about how that supplier engagement worked given that most of your suppliers are probably in emerging markets many of them in the global south where i imagine that the data practices and sophistication might not have been as far developed as let's say a company with much more established processes could you talk us a little through
1: that Yeah absolutely so indeed we we really rely on our suppliers for a lot of the data so we've worked together with our most strategic suppliers first and foremost to get a good understanding of what are all of the inputs what are the different emissions factors that we should know to actually understand what are, is the footprint of a product and how can we together create a full picture of everything that goes into that kind of a, a life cycle assessment the the actual calculation of what's called the global warming potential of a certain type of product and i think that that's actually yeah been very often quite a bit of a back and forth um from both sides making sure that we speak the same language understand what we're really after and knowing also what questions to ask and where data is fully up to what we need or where there might still be some, some gaps. And as we built some traction, we, we managed to get also more and more traction in gathering further data from other types of suppliers, because it was easier for us to explain what we're after and to work together on getting that data in a relatively straightforward way using a, a fixed template. Uh, I think it's also something that by the way, as a sector is developing, so the floriculture sector is making a lot of headway in what's called the a PEFCR, the product environmental footprint category rules. Hopefully the European Commission will launch a new comprehensive set of category rules uh summer next year, which again will make it easier to get even more data and more granular data as uh, as that rolls out. But at least already, we actually have now a lot of data in hand that makes sure that we can directionally correct, move in the right direction with the, the the products that we're sourcing. And I think it's it's also about how you build trust with your suppliers that you use this data to actually collaborate on finding opportunities to make headway in the right direction and not use it in a punitive way where you would immediately start making sourcing decisions or steering things away but rather look at what are then the the opportunities for reductions and, and moving forward together in the future.
0: Sibbe, this is super relevant to a lot of the work that we do at Altruistic, where our customers sit across the consumer value chain, including suppliers, producers, packagers, retailers, and brands. One of the topics that very often comes up when we work with suppliers, either of our customers or through our customers or independently, is whether this data will be misused Not just for punitive purposes, as you say, in terms of, you know, why are you 150 grams of emissions per unit? You should be 125, but also maybe even to back solve for cost and to drive commercial discussions and procurement discussions. Could you say a little bit more about how you've put suppliers at ease and and helped them get comfortable with the idea that this it's not just about it's not actually about punitive purposes and it's also not about necessarily having another commercial driver on the procurement side.
1: Yeah, so I think what we've seen is that very often it helps to go back to the values uh, to see if you're having shared value as a business. And we really see it as a necessary aspect for future-proofing our business. Um, I think this is a big topic for our sector. It's not going to go away. It's only going to grow in importance. And actually connecting on that and, and seeing how that actually is a starting point for the conversation, I think has been really helpful. And coincidentally, we've also seen that it actually has been a very good predictor for how your business has been able to weather the, the current energy crisis. And so the, the better you're performing in this area upfront, the better you're also prepared for these types of energy shocks. And that's just in general, actually something that we've seen and, and we're trying to unpick this further with further data. But suppliers that have really good sustainability credentials tend to be really good suppliers and really good business partners because it's also a bit of a predictor of quality of timeliness of just being a good supply chain operator where we see that if you're willing to work together on this type of data and it's an area where as a business you're focusing and you have your act together so to say then you're probably a business that is looking holistically at all the issues that's planning ahead thinking ahead and therefore is uh, is a good partner to connect on all kinds of topics and to work together within the long term That sounds like just the right rationale, Sibbeh, in terms of
0: anchoring on values, thinking about the long term, and even helping translate for your industry partners what the challenges are facing the industry, especially in the European markets where this is increasingly important, not just for consumers, but also regulators. One of the angles or levers that I imagine your business has available, which is available also to companies like Gusto and others where they have control over the product mix, is actually to substitute certain materials for others, which I imagine is, is more easy to do than in a classic FMCG, where if you think of a chocolate bar or a snack bar, there's only so much flexibility you have around what you actually replace a particular material with. Whereas in Bloom and Wild's classic you know, products, whether it's the bouquets or boxes or others, you can control that to a great degree. How, how are you thinking about product mix and product specifications as an avenue for more sustainability?
1: Yeah, so... What we're actually seeing, which I think is very promising for the sector, is that a lot of our long-term suppliers, um, for example, some of the the bigger players in Europe who traditionally have been in the Netherlands, for example, and in the UK as well, they've been moving into Southern Europe where they can grow without artificial heating, which of course is a significant reduction in in terms of their impact. And so I think what's interesting is that we've very often are bound by the seasons, of course, if we want to make sure that we have, a range that also is as low impact as possible, but then also looking at how we can get certain types of flowers that do need a little bit more warmth or or other types of inputs in a way that they don't need heating from greenhouses or they don't need to come from very far away. Those are great opportunities for us to work together with actually existing partners, but finding future fit ways of producing those goods and then use them in our bouquets more and more. And just in the same vein, Sibbe, I actually saw a very interesting piece of analysis. I
0: think it was by The the Florist magazine around the emissions footprint of roses in Kenya, for example, versus roses in, in the Netherlands. And I think that that geographic trade off as well of actually sourcing from different locations, whether it's to compensate for seasonality or because actually just certain growing locations are much more advantageous, even when you factor in the logistics. I imagine that's another avenue, right? You've described the situation where some of your suppliers are setting up production in different regions or shifting. Do you also see yourselves actually buying perhaps less locally and more from the global south because it's it's more emissions friendly? Could you tell us a bit more about how that dynamic and trade-off works?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we see actually that certainly in winter, getting flowers from Kenya is a lot more sustainable very often than getting them from Europe. And that's just to do because a few hours on an airplane is a lot lower emissions than a couple of days, weeks in a heated greenhouse. And so this is something that we're also taking on board when we make our current sourcing decisions, because we see that depends, of course, on the specific flower, but typically sourcing something from Kenya, even with air freight, can be 20% of the footprint of growing a, a certain type of flower within Europe in a heated greenhouse. And now... You know, as we're exploring and expanding with sea freight as a as an avenue, then you again reduce that with another eighty to ninety percent. So you're talking about a significantly lower footprint, even if it comes a little bit from a bit further away. And I think that's something that is also something that we really want to engage with and that we're transparent of when we look at what we share also with our customers to raise that kind of an awareness. That of course it really depends on the season, but it can actually be the right decision to look a little bit further away in terms of what the actual footprint means. And I imagine, Sibbe, that's an exciting way in which to
0: engage the customer and the consumer also in making a more sustainable choice to not buy this, but buy that. Could you tell us a little about any any interventions you're adopting on the consumer side to help bring customers into that relationship, really, where you're having, again, maybe a values-based dialogue, right? Whether it's through the product or through incentives with the consumer to help nudge them towards more sustainable choices. Is that on the
1: radar as well? Yeah, I think there's kind of two ways to look at it. I think in general, we, we think it's really important to be transparent and to substantiate our sustainability claims to our customers. So at a corporate level, as a company, we want to be very transparent. We want to have at least once a year... A report where we share how we're doing and have extra publications about our performance overall. So that's, that's quite cre- quite critical. Uh, and on top of that, we're also looking at maybe what's for a lot of people is more engaging is a sustainable product range. So we have a sustainable edit on our website and for different brands, we have different types of sustainable options. An organic bouquet in the Netherlands, for example, and in Germany and Belgium, we have the TLC kit in the UK where... Plants that maybe have a slightly different look than what is exactly the norm, what people expect can actually, with a little bit of tender love and care, still find a beautiful home. And that helps us, again, reduce waste and actually give a, a really fun experience to a lot of our customers. And we're looking to build out our sustainable product range further. So it builds on the foundation of having good certification, having that climate neutral or carbon neutral way of working. Uh, But then also on top of that, building more and more sustainable products with a very sustainability-first type of angle. Another example in the UK is our ocean plastic pots, which are made from plastic taken out of the ocean and actually given a second life as a a beautiful flower pot that actually helps clean up our oceans uh, through the way that that mechanism works. We do feel that sustainability is, is first and foremost our responsibility as a business. So, you know, we don't want our customers offsetting for their purchase. We offset the footprint that we have. We want to reduce the footprint that we have, but of course we do want to take them along in what we do, and we want to give them options to choose that more sustainable option still through our sustainable edit or through certain types of uh, products in our range.
0: I think those are some brilliant initiatives. I I really loved the TLC kit. Uh, It's such an innovative concept you mentioned a lot of this variance across regions right the organic bouquets in the netherlands the tlc kit or ocean plastic uh, pot in the uk could you tell us a little bit about anything you're learning in terms of the regional differences in how people view sustainability one thing that i noticed is i did notice at the time of the merger with Bergamo, i noticed that their brand already had a fairly well-established sustainability halo around it based on a lot of work that they'd been doing in that space Maybe even more so than uh, than the, the the flagship UK presence for Bloom and Wild. Have you seen a lot of that uptake, let's say in continental Europe being faster than in the UK? What are the regional differences you're seeing?
1: I think there's a lot of shared interest and I think shared perceptions. So if we engage with our customers, we see that climate, decent work, biodiversity, those are typically the biggest concerns, and they're they're the same across the board. And so I think. Bergamot has some great initiatives that really appeal to people when it comes to that, where they have certain bouquets that support beekeepers and that actually have, therefore, this extra biodiversity angle, which is a really nice initiative. Um, I think what we see, what's very particular to the UK is that more so than the rest of Europe, there's a very big focus on packaging, which if we look at our carbon accounting in total, isn't necessarily the biggest impact of our product group or category, but it is still a very important one. So I think therefore Bloom and Wild also since the beginning, really ahead of the curve when it comes to looking at circularity and making sure that for every element of our packaging, there's a good thinking going into how to make sure that it's from as much as possible recycled content and recyclable. Those are, are I think, some of the nuances, but I think in general, there's pretty good shared common sense across Europe on, on what the big ticket items are and, and where we can focus on. And in that sense, it's also quite nice that as brands, we've been sharing insights and have been sharing data when it comes to the footprint of our products, for example, you know, all brands had certain types of insights and we've now pulled that together in our central tool to actually optimize that even further, which has been really valuable for for all of our sourcing teams who've been looking into this data.
0: I'm sure. I think there's a lot to be learned from the different parts of the group, right? And the way in which you're bringing it together in a central database and central thinking around initiatives and pathways sounds like just the right way to go about it. As you think of, let's say, the natural tension between revenue growth and commercial benefit and sustainability, how do you see or weigh the trade-offs? And as you can imagine, given the cost of living crisis, energy prices, inflation, we're hearing a lot of insight, I guess, really from our customers and prospects around the need for sustainability to be self-financing and Support itself almost in the interests of the business and its commercial priorities, how do you find that set of trade-offs or maybe actual full synergy at Bloom and Wild?
1: Yeah, so I think very often there can actually be a good business case for it. It's not always immediately easy to make that business case because it can be relatively more intangible as well. so when it comes to you know the war on talent or customer loyalty, there are metrics that you can used to see how sustainable brands are performing better than conventional brands, so to say. But it's a little bit harder to put a number on. But also if we look at our operations, um, looking at, especially this winter with the energy crisis going on, the fact that we have lower emission carriers so that we've looked at really improving the efficiencies and using as little packaging as possible, or the fact that we've got an insight in actually where the footprint of our products are biggest and how we can Avoid perhaps the the most carbon intensive products because they will go up in price the most when there's an energy crisis. There have been a lot of opportunities actually to use sustainability data as a means of becoming a better business, also from a commercial standpoint. So not just an environmental standpoint in this case, but also commercially. So I think it's not always immediately upfront apparent where the commercial value will be, but we've actually seen a lot of opportunities to use sustainability as a whole, to make us a better business on a holistic note.
0: S- simply we'd love to hear a few of those examples. It sounds like there's some really interesting interventions that are informed by sustainability, but also commercially advantageous.
1: Would you be able to share one or two examples? Well, so I think to dive into the, the flower sourcing, by having a carbon footprint per flower, we actually could see, okay, which flowers might be less available in the winter, just because these growers will be impacted by the energy crisis. So they might actually stop growing in some cases, which happened. And that actually better prepared us for this winter. Plus we've actually been able to work also together with partners in finding other ways of growing or or working together on sharing knowledge on what the more sustainable growing practices were for the most at risk categories. Uh, So I think those have been important steps for us. Um, I think that's, that's been a key one. I think we've also seen that, of course. Every supplier is hit to a certain extent by the, the current inflation and then the rising prices, but the ones who've had the better sustainability practices, so the ones who've been adopting renewables as inputs for, for their energy needs, they've of course been affected a lot less. So they've also, again, been a good predictor of what are good suppliers for us to work together with and which ones we want to scale up for the future because of the better performance overall.
0: That's fascinating to hear, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of resonance for a lot of our listeners We've talked a fair bit about carbon and emissions, but you did mention that there were six priorities that came out. Uh, There was climate impact, there was water, there was biodiversity, there was good wages, there was gender equity, and then I believe there was a sixth on poverty alleviation as well. I'd love to get a bit of a sense of across these six, which do you see as the areas where bloom and wild could actually maybe move the furthest? Or another way to ask the same question, which of these seems the hardest? Uh, to move on versus the easiest.
1: Uh, the interesting thing is, of course, that it helps to have specific targets on each of them, but you don't necessarily want to look at them too much in isolation because of carbon considerations. We move everything from one association location to another, but maybe there's bigger social issues than we actually are exchanging one problem for another if we're not careful. So it's about making sure that we look at them holistically and drive progress on all fronts. I do think there's different ways that we tackle all of these so there's a sort of foundational way that we look at at covering them so for carbon being carbon neutral for our social performance we have social certifications that we ask for for our growers and for other uh, suppliers that are at risk of any types of social issues in the chain but then we're currently also looking at how we can go beyond certification or beyond these kinds of foundational activities to see what are the different types of programs that might drive progress on harder issues, like looking at closing living wage gaps or looking at gender empowerment in countries where there's a very male dominated culture. And these are things that we as a brand cannot fix alone. So here we're also in talks with multi-stakeholder initiatives, with other groups and with our suppliers to see how can we collaborate on these types of topics and how can we work together on making improvements happen. There's a lot of partnerships that we have with different types of community organizations. And through those, we also look to have more and more of a positive impact globally. And this is something that I think we want to scale also going forward, because I think there's still a long way to go in certain areas as a sector. And I'm hopeful that with new initiatives coming up, like a, a British covenant around flower growing, that we can take some of these really difficult to solve very deep in the supply chain issues and with a collaborative activity can come up with a lasting solution. I think that does sound
0: like the right way forward. And also, I imagine that in a, in a business like Bloom and Wild, in some ways, it's easier to control for the environmental factors because you're able to look at the product that you're buying and make a judgment on kind of what's going into it based on regions and spending and so on. Whereas a lot of the social elements are a bit harder to control without some sort of an industry consensus, because so much of that happens at the farm level with limited visibility actually available further downstream. One of the things that I've been thinking about recently is just the aggregation of ESG metrics into ESG as a category and a single number and a single metric. And I personally find this to be often a misleading exercise because you take, you know, as in the case of Bloom and Wild, six very different elements of of business, really, right? Business and life in society. And to conflate them into one unifying metric or approach always seems to me a bit patronizing almost of the work that needs to go into that. Uh, Without biasing your response too much, I'd love to get your thoughts on that debate, right? ESG versus sustainability versus climate. How to think about this as a business operator versus an investor, for example?
1: Yeah, so I think In the end, what gets measured gets done, right? So we do need to formulate targets. We need to understand where we are and how big the gap is or what kind of a goal we can set for ourselves. We also like to be benchmarked, right? Because that way you can also see really where you are and taking a simple metric, but wages, which obviously if you ask workers, typically their number one concern, even more important than health and safety sometimes, even though, you know, people looking from the outside might disagree. But there we we do often collect a lot of data. And we've actually seen that for our most strategic farms in Kenya, we're actually at the top quartile of the wages that are being paid in the region, which is certainly also where we want to be. So we want to make sure that we're working with the best performers in that area. But yeah, I would agree with you that you don't want to stare just at one number. It's about a very broad set of objectives. And perhaps more importantly, it's also about listening and understanding from local stakeholders and from the workers in your supply chain, from everybody, what their issues are and what they would really want to bring to the table. So having in that sense a more inclusive approach is also yeah, a vital way of moving forward. And Sippe, just on the subject of
0: benchmarks, one thing that occurred to me as you were speaking is that your approach to emissions data, for example, is likely to be a lot more robust and a lot more comprehensive and granular than many others in your space, just by virtue of how you're approaching it and the tools that you're building internally. I imagine that the risk of being benchmarked is that your number may be lower or higher, but your approach is fundamentally more robust than a lot of other approaches out there. And so the benchmarks or comparisons, you almost need to unpack how they were created and what went into them for it to be a fair comparison. Otherwise, your number may be unfairly judged in context. Is that something that's on your mind as well as you kind of improve the rigor of, of your analysis?
1: Yeah, so it, it underlines, again, the importance of collaboration. And you know, there's, a, there's an old saying that if you want to go fast, you can go alone, but if you want to go far, you should go together. I'm a big believer in that when it comes to these type of topics. So we've gone on ahead. We've we've been, been quite quick in moving forward with developing a, a footprinting tool that helps us now and has put us on our way. But ultimately, this is something that as a sector, we should embrace broadly and making sure that everybody sings of the same hymn sheet, that we all look at the same data and that we all compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges. So I would agree that there's a lot of work still to be done in making sure that we harmonize our approach and that we all share the same views when it comes to what's sustainable, what isn't. And of course, this is something that I think can come also through the European Commission or through other governments who can help set this kind of a level playing field and otherwise it's, it's important to bring on board NGOs or other organizations who can be a fair educator of what is the right level of looking at things and how can we adopt a method and develop a method that actually works for the sector as a whole. And Sibbe, on, on the subject of going further
0: together, if you think about, let's say, one major tailwind that gives you reason for optimism and that's pushing you further either in your capacity in in bloom and wild or just as an industry along the road to sustainability versus one big headwind that you know could be slowing you down or gives you some cause for concern and this could be regulation industry trend any any aspect really could you give us one example of each one reason for optimism one
1: reason for caution yeah so i think you know we just come out of the COP27 it's always a a fascinating time to look at what's happening in the world so I think what makes me optimistic is that there's a huge unprecedented attention for this topic so people aren't looking away anymore or hardly if you look at the new generations everybody who's coming into the workforce who's becoming more and more of a deciding voice and what goes on in the market that's all moving in the right direction so and I think that's a really important development and that's should put every business on alert that if they don't have their ESG together yet, that they should start to do so as well, because sure enough, the financial sector and other important stakeholders, they've already caught on. ESG is no longer a buzzword within the financial sector. If they look at where to put their money, but you actually see that sustainable portfolios outperform conventional portfolios year on year. Um, so I think that's really positive. I think the tailwind, or or sorry, headwind, the the negative story is that it still seems to be too slow. More work is still needed. We're still facing a big climate crisis. We're still facing biodiversity challenges. There's still a lot of concern around people in global poverty backsliding since COVID-19. We had a lot of positive trends there and, and they have been curtailed to an extent. So there's certainly... There's no point in being complacent right now. We still need to do a lot of work, roll up our sleeves, and yeah, move faster. But at least there's a groundswell that gives me hope that we'll we're, we're get there and that we can make it happen.
0: Zibe, thank you so much. On that note of the groundswell of hope, I think we'll, we'll draw this to a close. Thank you so much for coming and spending time with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And, and thank you to our listeners for listening in to today's episode of This Is Altruistic do get in touch if you're on a journey to understanding your business's environmental impact the notes from this episode are available in the show notes below and you can find more episodes of this is altruistic on spotify apple podcasts and google podcasts